Welcome to this special episode of Too Long Don't Listen. My name is Sean Peterbudge. And if that piece of score is not familiar to you, it soon will be. Um, That's Michael Giacchino's main theme for The Batman, the first standalone live-action Batman film since 2012's The Dark Knight Rises. It is written and directed, of course, by Matt Reeves. Uh, Robert Pattinson leads an all-star cast in the title role and is supported by Zoe Kravitz as Selina Kyle, uh, Paul Dano plays the Riddler. Jeffrey Wright is this iteration's Jim Gordon. Andy Circus plays Alfred. John Totaro is the crime boss Car- uh, Carmine Falcone. And Colin Farrell uh, takes his place as Falcone's right-hand man, the Penguin. Uh, many, many more. It's, a, it's an absolutely outstanding cast. Um, and one that kind of most people will know or be familiar with a number of the actors who pop up in the film. Um, but it is interesting to see just the breadth of, of really quality performers that are on display. Uh, it is in wide release as of today, the 3rd of March, uh, and I'll be w- uh, working my way through my thoughts on the film itself, the property itself, and the ups and downs and, and opportunities that are inherent in both. Um, just a little bit of a disclaimer before we get going. This will be spoiler-ish. Um, I'll try as best I can to abstain from major spoilers, but sometimes I might have a flight of fancy to go in, into one of them in, in pretty great detail um, if I feel like the conversation demands that I do so. Um, so if you haven't seen the film and you re- wish to be unspoiled, hit pause, wait till you go see it, and come back and listen to it later. Um, if you have seen the film and would like to chat about it, um, absolutely continue to listen. Be sure to reach out as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts and theories and your responses to the film and obviously this episode about the film. Um, firstly, a verdict. Ultimately, I don't want to bury the lead. I liked it. Uh, I thought it was an interesting and refreshing take on not just the character of Batman, but sort of the genre itself. More on that as we kind of go along. I'll, I'll try to explore that idea in greater detail as the episode progresses. I found that I really liked a lot of the individual elements of the film, from Greg Frazier's uh, photography to Michael Giacchino's uh, score to a number of the performances, uh, the production design, you know, the framing of the narrative. Um, I thought I liked so much of all of those things um, and more, but I'm not sure that when pulled together, if the whole is ultimately less than the sum of its parts equal to or more than, there's part of me that is leaning towards less than, and I'm not quite sure why that is. It's probably more of a gut instinct. Um, I feel like this film will challenge audiences who have grown accustomed to comic book or superhero films having a very particular, very established, very workshopped nowadays rhythm or structure to them. You know, a lot of these films that come out, a lot of these comic booky films have a very conservative look or feel. They don't want to challenge you. They don't want to be different. They don't want to kind of potentially, you know, they're walking the high wire as is, so they want to be as safe and as dependable, as reliable, as consistent as possible. And this absolutely isn't that. 
and that is a good thing in isolation, but I often, I kind of have to kind of sit back and I, I sort of have to divorce myself from how good I want the film to be when having this conversation, you know, obviously up against how good do I think the film is. Um, because ultimately, any movie, not just a, a big summer tentpole, big studio picture like this, any film having ambition or scale or dare should be celebrated. But that in and of itself doesn't mean that it's a good movie. It's just a movie that's taken a risk. And let's be brutally honest, when we're talking about a 150-odd million dollar film taking a risk, it's, it's a weird thing to say when we're talking about an established IP taking a risk Yes and no, like it is and it isn't. There, there is, there's a spectrum, I suppose. You know, a Batman film is always going to have an audience, no matter what it ends up being or how it ends up playing. But in today's comic book climate, where they are all the rage, there are so many being made, and they're all made to look and feel and play in a very particular, very structured way, it is interesting, it is refreshing to have a film like this come along and really challenge that and be different, be bold. And in the end, I think it's a good movie. You know, me personally, I think it is a good movie. But I'll be really interested to observe how it plays with the masses in the coming days and weeks as it rolls out across the world. Because how good a movie it is, time will tell. I always find that with with big films like this, there can sometimes be a confirmation bias. We all watch the trailers. We all have our mind blown by what it looks like, what the film promises to be. So the hype builds... And yeah, when we see it, you know, I walked out of the cinema last night, I went, yeah, it was good. But there'll be absolutely people walking out of the cinemas proclaiming it's the greatest thing they've ever seen. And that might be the case, it's to each his own, or her own. But ultimately, this confirmation bias, I think, creates an unrealistic sort of prism through which you view the film. You walk in having spoken to friends or been on Twitter or trawling all sorts of you know message boards, movie boards, you know dissecting every piece of information and really committing yourself to this movie. And for that to be justified, you have to think the movie's great. And if it's anything less than perfect, we can't have that. So that confirmation bias again, I feel like there's going to be a bit of that going on with this movie. The hype was so much, the trailer looked so good. It was different and it was refreshing and it was like, yeah, it's a good movie, but, you know, I just think that sometimes these films carry such an unrealistic expectation that they'll be more than they are. They'll have more to say about whatever it is they're talking about and that's probably not reasonable in the end and a consequence of that, I feel, is that sometimes they get held in too high of a regard for what they ultimately end up being. You know, it comes out and it has to either be the greatest thing ever made or a big pile of shit. There's no middle ground. Um, but in saying all that, doubling back, I absolutely give the film credit for bucking the trend and existing outside the established, comfortable, safe middle ground that so many comic book movies inhabit these days. You know, and it takes those risks and is prepared to, to be an outlier. Is it the best Batman film ever made? No. In truth... I don't think that that film's been made yet. As nonsensical a statement as that is. But more on that later. I don't think the best Batman film has been made yet. I think each of these films has had an element redeeming or exceptional in them or otherwise. But I don't know if the character has come together on screen 
in such a way that we could declare it definitive. Maybe that'll never happen because definitive is a matter of personal taste and preference and, and you're never going to get a consensus on you know, what everyone thinks is the perfect Batman, the world, the character, etc. But we'll, we'll talk about that as we sort of go on a little bit. Um, just quickly with the plot, I don't want to give too much away. Um, so we'll go over this kind of briefly-ish. Uh, but the Batman is, finally, a murder mystery. After 80-odd years, the world's greatest detective finally does some proper detecting. Not just off-screen nonsense that the film can't be bothered explaining, so he just does it in between scenes. Don't even get me started on the Dark Knight and that stupid ballistic shell in the in the brick. That's just dumb. Absolutely ridiculous. I don't even want to go on about it. The film starts with the killing of Gotham's mayor, a man whose corruption has for too long gone unpunished, according to the dark and demented figure that is the Riddler. It is the first in a series of murders targeting Gotham's elite and the institutions in which they inhabit, which will include the killing of a high-ranking police officer, a crooked uh, district attorney, a mob rat, and more. It is a fraught game of cat and mouse that quickly involves the mysterious figure that is the Batman, who does his level best to keep up with the Riddler, let alone get ahead of his game, as the city of Gotham is plunged into chaos. As the bodies pile up and the methods and motives of the killer are slowly revealed, Bruce Wayne must come to grips with the true and sordid nature of not just Gotham's seedy past, but how his family is intrinsically linked to the cultural and societal decay he'd long sought to arrest. It is a moment of revelation that tests the young crime fighter, only in his second year in the cape and the cowl, giving him pause to consider why he's doing what he's doing, whether or not it's for the reasons or in the honour of those he set out to do it for. Along the way, he forms an alliance with cunning cat burglar Selina Kyle, who herself has personal ties to the tangled meths that is Gotham's wretched underbelly, and a score to settle as a result. Together, they work to uncover the Riddler's endgame before it's too late, not just for his next victim, but the city itself. So, as I said there, the key takeaway, and, and the biggest watch this space for me in the lead-up to this movie, was that it was finally... A detective story. It was finally a noir detective story, which is Batman's stock and trade, and has been underrepresented in Batman films for far too long. For for whatever reason, I'm not 100% sure why it's taken until 2022 for there to be a a proper detective story with Batman at the heart. It's I've spoken in the past about how certain things just fit. Making Spider-Man a teenager, you know, when Tom Holland came into the role, and you just immediately went oh, wow, or, or general audience, would it, oh, he's the right age, he's a kid, oh, yeah, this this works, we'll go on, I've got some thoughts about Robin, which we'll get into later, but the actual path of this film to our cinema screens was a, a really curious situation, to be honest, um, but it is one worth covering off before I dive into the particulars of the film itself, uh, it was originally slated to be co-written by, directed by, and starring Ben Affleck, that obviously didn't come to pass. Uh, Affleck had worked on and written a script with DC head honcho Jeff Johns, which would feature Joe Mangiello as Deathstroke, uh, who was obviously teased toward the end of Justice League, um, as the primary antagonist. But when there were kind of rumblings that that script wasn't quite where it needed to be or where Affleck wanted it to be, you know, the internal workings of it will maybe one day be made public, but effectively Affleck sort of fell out of love with the role and being in the role 
and announced that he didn't really want to write, direct, and star in this role and really carry this enormous property on his back, you know, in every way imaginable. So he would be handing over directing duties to someone else. That other person was announced to be Matt Reeves, who came on in place of Affleck as director. Um, And then slowly but surely, you know, the wheels didn't quite get moving maybe as quickly as audiences or fans would have liked. And then when there was word that the existing script was out the window, well, things really ramped up. Affleck, who many thought in the first place was an interesting hire for the role, you know, one person who has um, developed a fantastic working relationship with Warner Brothers as a filmmaker of Lady won them the Best Picture Oscar in 2013 for Argo. I remember when the word rumours broke initially, it was, oh, they're hiring Ben Affleck to make a Batman movie. And, and people were kind of like, oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, cool. Like, he's a pretty cool up-and-coming filmmaker. He's made some good movies. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. No, they were hiring him to be Batman. And following issues, you know, eventually on the set of Justice League, you know, it was reported his continuing interest in the role was waning, um, and a short time later it was confirmed that he was out as Batman altogether, you know, something that had ramifications on and off the screen, you know, quite significantly, you know, moving forward. Um, as a roundabout way, he'll cameo in The Flash, coming up later this year as a sort of a final farewell to the role, you know, move that will pave the way for Michael Keaton to return to the role of Batman, um, something he last played 30 years ago. But ultimately, as Warner Brothers and DC really struggled to fix their failing on-screen cinematic universe, so many misfires in that space, which are only exacerbated by the roaring success enjoyed by Marvel on the other side of the ball, Reeves had quietly been crafting what ultimately must have been an incredibly compelling vision for the Warner Brothers brass. Like, it must have been so interesting and so perfect for them to kind of turn their heads and, and entertain, well, this is going to be its own thing. This doesn't fix the Affleck problem as to who Batman is, which is a serious problem. But this is so interesting that we're actually prepared to do it in its own universe, in its own offshoot, is its own thing. So I think that that's an interesting thing, isn't it? That they ultimately just settled that Affleck's left this movie and now this movie isn't even going to be in that universe. Which is obviously what they would have liked to have been doing. I mean, <laughs> they, he's going to inhabit his own space. We're going to start from scratch with a new franchise. We, we believe in this idea so much. And that in and of itself is a brave move. You know, they need a Batman. They liked this Batman. But we'll let him be its own thing. It's this retro, big-budget studio filmmaking in, in a lot of ways. You know, it's what's best for one of our premier characters less so than it is what's best for the bottom line of the studio. So ultimately, Reeves is allowed to push on with this film, uh, casts Robert Pattinson as a younger, fresher face Bruce Wayne, and that immediately sort of sets about positioning the film as a grittier, grimier take. And as I said, it's about time, you know, for a lot of fans... Just an unbelievable engine noise out there. Don't know what that was. Um, Whispers emerged that it was going to be back to these detective noir thriller roots, which was really exciting, and then eventually all that kind of stuff was confirmed and the film got underway. Had some production problems, you know, filming in in the UK, filmed a bit in Liverpool. Um, Robert Pattinson came down with COVID. The film was waylaid by COVID a few times, delayed and the like, but ultimately, you know, comes to the screen as it does finally now for us to enjoy and talk about. So really interesting how it starts out as one thing, you know, diverges from that path, becomes something else altogether, um, and then the, the flow and effect of that is 
Keaton comes back to the role. So there's all these kind of, you know, um, all these all these different balls in the air reacting to all sorts of different developments as the story went on. Um, look, I want to talk about the property itself as well. Um, you know, being a, a big Batman fan as I, as I am, it's always exciting when there's a new Batman film. I said the same thing with... James Bond is very much in the same ballpark. When there's a new James Bond film, when there's a new Batman film, there are certain properties that are just a bit bigger. They're just a bit bigger deal. They just turn a few more heads, and Batman is absolutely one of those. A lot of that has to do not just with the character's lineage and the character's history. All sorts of different iterations have been unbelievably successful, and its longevity you know, it speaks to a place in the public consciousness um, that is earned, and earned over a... 80-odd years, but it is generational as well, which is fun. Um, But a lot of the recent stuff really does owe itself to the success of Tim Burton's Batman in 1989, which created that slew of the first four films, which obviously came aground spectacularly with Batman and Robin, which led to the relaunch and the rebirth with Batman Begins, etc. And then the success of that side of things in a weird kind of way also led to DC really ramping up there are other characters with Superman uh, leading to obviously their failed thus far Justice League um, adventures, although Wonder Woman and Aquaman have both had their their successes. Um, I said before that the best Batman film hasn't been made yet, and I feel like people have fallen into the trap of canonising the work of Christopher Nolan as the definitive telling of the Batman story when in reality it's probably not. They are good films, particularly the first two. And they tell a very different tale to the ones that we'd seen to date, you know, both stylistically and narratively. They are really good movies. But what is, what it is, is one telling or perspective on a story or a character that truthfully can be told a number of very different, very valid ways. It is an interpretation of the character if he lived in this time and in this world and how his presence would inform everything else around him. I've always found that the best parts of Nolan's interpretation was a want for it all to be grounded. And that in itself was a was a response to the trend in cinema where, where a lot of this stuff had spiralled out of control and become really colourful and silly and nonsensical. And that's, again, something we're experiencing now where things reach a plateau and then they escalate again, escalate again, escalate again. And then we get a film like The Batman in reaction to what Marvel have been doing. And it's not that it's necessarily groundbreaking. It's just doing something a bit different, going back to a different way of approaching things, stripping a bit of the silliness and the crowd-pleasing sort of stuff out and going back to basics. So I think with, with Nolan stuff, the film posited that they wanted it to be as realistic and accessible as possible, which informed us that the heightened reality of sort of Joel Schumacher's films or the twee, quirky weirdness of Burton wasn't going to happen this time around. The gimmick or the hook was Nolan's take was real, grounded, could be happening. We're making it as realistic as possible. Did this ultimately make the characters more relatable? I'm not sure. The world they inhabited was. But you know, characteristics and morality and perspective shouldn't really be affected by how the filmmaker presents the environment the characters are in. Um, but because the environment was posited and presented as real, so real, it's gritty and it's you could walk down the street and that's what it looks like, you know, for the first time in a long time, Batman's world looked exactly like the real world, the audience believed that the characters were real or more real too. You know, and, and a sidebar of that is actually funny to observe that the trend created by Batman Begins, 
saw everything else become really straight and just right down the riddle and, um, you know, straight down the line for a little while. James Bond reacted very sharply. Iron Man reacted. Iron Man followed suit in 2008. And then you look at that now and you go, by the end of that, Tony Stark's fighting aliens. He's in space. He's sort of going, where that ends it up from where it started is quite remarkable that it was absolutely a reaction to how can we make this sort of as real as possible, have some fun, but have it be as grounded in reality as we possibly can, and then it ends up becoming this fantastical galactic adventure before too long. So that's interesting. Um, And just with regard to the character as well, I'm always at pains to say that as a fan of the character, every version that has been committed to film so far has merit. You know, the other films are all an homage to something in the Batman mythos, in, in the canon, you know, a time or a place, that is all valid. You know, Tim Burton's was this anachronistic sort of throwback to 30s and 40s gangster films that was sort of Warner Brothers' stock and trade, so that's fun, but it's also very silly. Like, if you watch them now, there's, there's this misconception that the Burton films are really dark and really brooding, and you're like, no, they're dark. they're really silly. They're actually not that much of a leap from the Adam West stuff. They're played very straight, but they're actually quite over-the-top and colourful and comic booky, which is fine, but they've got this kind of reputation as something that they're really not and never were. Uh, Joel Schumacher's first go-around, Batman Forever, was kind of like Batman in the 50s, this high-concept, high-stakes, high-drama sort of silliness. It was a bit more colour, a bit more pop as well, um, but that, that was absolutely in the wheelhouse of an era that it had existed in the past. And then obviously Batman and Robin... That was the Doja TV show. That was a tribute, and not too subtle tribute, to the camp and the colour of the 1960s, which, say what you want, was one of the most popular and enduring cultural landmarks of early television. It birthed colour television, that TV show. You know, And rarely, in the years since, or before, had the character ever been as popular as he was during the heady days of that 60s run with Adam West and co., and, you know, the, the celebrities poking their heads out of the windows as they're climbing up buildings and, you know, legendary, you know, real Hollywood figures at the time, a Burgess Meredith or a Frank Gorshin, they would have scripts ready if one of those guys wanted to be in an episode. They would just have scripts ready to go that we can shoot quickly if one of those guys said, I'd like to be in an episode. They were a big deal. So when Schumacher does it the way he does it, that film has an audience. The audience is kids, very clearly. You don't have to love it. But don't dismiss it, dismiss it out of hand as some invalid take on the character. So the basic thing I'm trying to get across here is that everyone has a vision for the character, what it is, what it could be, what it should look like. And most of those visions are valid interpretations of the character and his world. And they're informed by a few tenets. There are a couple of key ones that you kind of have to adhere to or, or tap into for it to be a Batman story. There's obviously the character of Batman himself, and that sense of duality or, or duty, you know, the why he's doing what he's doing. Michael Keaton, I thought, inhabited that really brilliantly. This really troubled sort of guy that was, was trying to do something because he had the means to and he felt compelled to out of a sense of obligation for his parents and his city. One of the, the, my favourite scenes in that movie and in any Batman movie, which is, again, a little bit misunderstood, is when he has a go, you know, he he go face-to-face with the Joker and he's just Bruce Wayne and he does the, you know, you want to get nuts, let's get nuts. The brilliance of that scene, I think I've said this before somewhere, 
But the brilliance of that scene is that there's a shot where Bruce Wayne is monologuing and talking a little bit, and the Joker's looking at him as if to say, you're nuts. He doesn't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Bruce Wayne at that point, he does shortly thereafter, doesn't know that that's the man that killed his parents. But what, how Bruce is carrying on and, and what he's saying and whatnot, you've got this guy, this psychopath who's killing people, wants to kill more people, wants to abduct this woman, etc. He's looking at this man, this ordinary man, as if to say, you're crazy. It's brilliant. It's so well done. Val Kilmer, a little bit later on, he was the vapid, sort of empty, empty-eyed pretty boy. And he was actually a pretty terrific Bruce Wayne. To be honest, I'm, I'm not sure about him as Batman. He wasn't bad, but he, he was actually a really good Bruce Wayne. Kind of had that dashing sort of 50s movie star quality about him. He was a pretty handsome dude back in the day. And then Clooney was the campy, silly Batman. Legitimate portrayal. People just don't like it. The, the key thing to remember about that film is it's very deliberately a toy commercial. You know, just that's it is what it is. And kids love it. So you had then Christian Bale wrestling again, a little bit like Keaton with trying to make a difference and starting from scratch and trying to figure out what he could do in this grittier world and what then would be the consequences of him being Batman, both personally and to the broader city, the psyche of both, which was cool. Um, And then you had Ben Affleck, who was sort of on the edge of anger boiling over. He was a man almost at the end of his tether, really, governed by suspicion, governed by a little bit of paranoia, but also informed by... His was a Batman that had been active for 20-odd years. And the most interesting parts of his portrayal, arguably, are that it hints at a kind of an interesting past, where he has a Robin, where Robin was killed by the Joker. Was it what was it um, Tim Drake? Or was it Dick Grayson? You know, well, that's, that, that's sort of more interesting than anything those films gave us. We'll talk about that later. Another real key tenant is Gotham City. Gotham City needs to be a character. And it needs to feel a bit like a dream, like it's familiar. It's not real, but it's it looks familiar. It needs to feel unlike anywhere else, but kind of like it couldn't really exist. It can draw on places as inspiration, just as this new film does, absolutely. But it can't be a facsimile of them. You know, there's a reason why Anton first production design on that first Tim Burton movie has stood the test of time. It's because it's striking and it's unique and it's grimy and it's grim and it's lived in and it's... It's just yuck. You know, I think one of the slides in the script was hell had opened up. And you see it and it's just so definitive for me as as a Batman, as what this Gotham City needs to be and needs to feel like. And that's honestly one of the biggest bugbears I have with the Nolan films, probably begins aside, is that a little bit too much of them take place in these really painfully real, pretty flat sort of settings. There's a lot of scenes in like open offices, office like open plan office um, spaces, uh, and that's a stylistic thing. But when they go outside, they're just pretty flat exteriors in a Chicago or a Philadelphia. Here, I should say the exception, obviously, in, in Begins had like the Narrows, which was really cool. That, that felt really nice. That felt like it needed to. You know, you're making a movie. It's like, sh- take us somewhere fantastical. Um, here, in, in The Batman, just like in Burton's first movie, love that Gotham City is this dank, overgrown, decaying shithole. You know, it's somewhere that's gotten so far out of hand. You know, the ship has so long since sailed. It's so hard to fix that it's just in the too hard basket. And that just means it continues to get worse. 
So Gotham City needs to have this real flavour to it. It needs to feel lived in and it needs to feel dangerous and dark. You know, it needs to have that that character about it, uh, which it does in this one, which is good. And then the supporting cast. Batman's got this really great gallery of rogues and allies. It's probably the envy of just about every other comic book character, to be honest. And I think that this film actually uses that better than any others. It balances it all really well. Like, I think Andy Serkis' Alfred is really good. I think Michael Caine's Alfred's probably a little bit better. But then I think this film uses Commissioner Gordon better than the Nolan films did, certainly better than um, the Schumacher and Burton films used Gordon. And that's saying plenty because Gary Oldman was brilliant as Gordon and had a really important function to the plot. But Jeffrey Wright's Gordon has a lot to do with the plot. Uh, with the plot, He has a lot to do with Batman, which is great to see. Um, and then as I said, Alfred. Alfred's good in this, don't get me wrong. And then you've got, you know, the flow on of like a Selena Kyle and the way that the Penguin factors into it and the way that Carmine Falcone factors into it. And there's, there's so many other elements of these, even the mayor, the new mayoral candidate and the way that all these all these pieces work together. You know, Gotham feels like a big place and it needs to feel like a big place. It needs to feel like it's inhabited by a lot of threats, a lot of friends, a lot of hindrances, a lot of people who can help. And all those elements come together to help the characters and the plot. And I think that this film really does that well. Like I said, you know, the police force is another entity, DA's office. You know, there's an interesting power dynamic at play when Gotham City's done right with Batman at the centre of them as the conduit through which the criminal element and law and order kind of face off. And I think that this film really balances that well. Um, as we keep on going, just the cast and the characterization of this particular film, we'll have a sort of a, a bit of a chat about the actors and their performances and portrayals and the way that the characters in this film are, are, are presented. So Robert Pattinson, I'm not actually sure how good he is in the role. You know... Being Batman is a thankless task in a lot of ways. You're the title character and everything runs through you kind of thing. But very rarely does the film revolve around you. Batman is usually reacting to everything. He reacts to the villains. reacts to the information he can uncover or be told. And those roles, I suppose, as the villains, just as a sidebar, tend to be a little less defined, a little bit more open to interpretation like you can have a bit more fun being the villain because there's just a bit more scope to go out there and crazy and whatnot. Whereas with Batman, he's a little bit more clearly defined and the expectations are a little bit more clearly defined. Um, but he does do some some things well. You know, I, I think I don't think that he's bad in the role, um, but I'm not quite sure he was as striking. And and again, that could be by design. He's a young Batman. He's not the finished article. That's very deliberate. But with that said, there's just there's some elements of him that are just a I'm not, I'm not quite sure about it. It'd be interesting to watch those play out um, in future installments as the years go on, depending on what we get. But I like that the film kind of leans into the fact that Bruce Wayne isn't of sound mind. Now, that's the first thing you've got to talk about with Bruce Wayne. Pattinson plays him as a very rough around the edges, very raw type. You know, one that's coming to grips with the emotion of what he's doing or trying to do. Um, you know, he may think he's sound, and he's certainly righteous enough and has his convictions, but he's also in a weird headspace. The character has to be. You know, there has to be a sense of derangement about him, you know, to be so committed to what he's doing and to be so clear as to why he's doing it. And then what, if any limits there are, as to how far he, he'll go or he's prepared to go. 
you know, what he's prepared to do, what's too far. You know, ultimately, Bruce Wayne has PTSD, really. The death of his parents you know, sent him down this very dark path, you know, literally, figuratively, you know, psychologically. You know, he's living this really isolated lie of a life to a lot of people, trying to rationalise what he's doing and what he wants to get out of it, what he has to do to get that. You know, the film has a little bit to say about Bruce Wayne being the mask, which isn't a new concept um, in, in a lot of these properties. You know, Superman has sort of carried that for a little while now that you know, Clark Kent is the disguise, and it's an interesting psychological way to look at things. Um, so it's not a new idea, but it's a fun idea. Um, but Reeves has said, you know, as I mentioned above, a bit like Nolan has with Batman uh, Begins, he's a very young Batman. He's far from the finished article, and both his mentality and his methods will evolve over time, so judging this film in isolation is unfair because if, if if Reeves goes on to make a trilogy of these movies, well, by the end of movie three, he won't be acting like he is at the start of movie one. If you get what I mean, there'll be that uh, definition over time and evolve, an, an evolved character over time. So this will be fun to look back on. So that all depends, obviously, on Reeves' vision. Um, having said that, I don't necessarily think that this performance tells or shows us anything overly new about the character. Um, but crucially, the push and the pull between Batman and Bruce Wayne definitely feels like the first film in a while where the character is principally Batman. A lot of the other films take a lot of time getting us to, to Batman, whereas this film is not really like that at all. It, it wants to show you Batman quickly and it wants to establish Batman as opposed to Bruce Wayne. And that's that duality, you know, in the scripting phase that can sometimes be a hard, uh, hard balancing act. You don't want to give us all Batman. We want to do some Bruce Wayne stuff, and you're like, eh, but the audience probably just wants, probably, probably just wants Batman. Yeah. Um, having said all that, you know, I think that the detective stuff is so important to that as well to keep him as Batman, which is great. It's so central to the character and it's something that hasn't been done or explored nearly often or well enough. I mean, in the very first one, he solved the Axis chemical sort of formulas um, that the Joker is used to obviously tamper with the city's cosmetic supply. He does that off screen. He figures that out in between scenes. And you're like, okay, yeah, well, yeah, I suppose he did some work there. We didn't get to see any of it. But... I mean, you suppose he did it. In Batman Returns, he does a little bit of detective work about the Red Triangle gang and the Penguin. A little bit. Forever, he doesn't really do anything. And obviously in Batman and Robin, I mean... He walks into that freezer and finds Nora Freeze. Doesn't really do any detective work. Figures out the poison ivy's lips are poisonous. But you get what I mean. To actually put him at the heart of a proper investigation... Is great for the film to have the conviction to finally do it. Is great, um, and then lastly on Pattinson, it does feel like a strange role for him to tackle though. And and Warner Brothers kind of have a bit of a history of that of late. I've found that with a few of their comic book type hirings, sometimes it feels like a lot of these actors don't actually want these roles, but for whatever reason they get they just they do them. For I'm not sure if it's money or I remember Ezra Miller was like shocked that they wanted him to be the Flash. It was sort of a bit sub like, why do you? I don't know why you want me to do this. Obviously, we spoke about Affleck before. Similarly, it was a weird role for him to take on at that that point in his career, having already done Daredevil. Um, but he went and did it, and he, and he was good. I, I like Ben Affleck in the role, but unfortunately, came undone. And here with Pattinson, you kind of like you've been making a bit, you know, a good good run of it lately with 
much smaller films where your acting chops are actually on display. And that's not to say that you can't put in a great performance as Batman, but it just feels like a film that's very unlikely with this phase of your career. It felt like you already did the franchise fodder to get to do the movies you want to do. And now you're going back and doing Batman, but interesting. Uh, Paul Dano as the Riddler, um, you know, the film needs a strong villain. It needs a strong puppet master to be setting up the games that they're all playing and putting your hero through the ringer. They need to be dangerous. They need to be... They sort of... I use the word competent a lot, but they actually need to be good. They need to be smart. They need to be ahead of the game. They need to have everything accounted for. Um, So to position the Riddler not as a cackling Frank Gorshin or Jim Carrey-esque buffoon, not that they were were good in the role. Don't don't get me wrong. they, They both played the role really well in their own ways. It makes perfect sense for a character like the Riddler to be a dangerous, deranged serial killer, to be an off-kilter, nasty guy who just wants to cause mayhem and you know unseat and unsettle the established order of things. And in a lot of ways, it's an interesting role because the meatier aspects of the, f- of the performance don't come until well into the movie, until the last half an hour or He's actually not really on screen. He's wearing a mask. He's concealed. He's shot in kind of mobile phone footage. So I, I, I do wonder, as good as Paul Dano is in the role, like he, he does what you need him to do in the role, you don't actually get a scene with him and Batman or with him and someone else until well into the movie. And I wonder if that's why the casting of Jonah Hill, which was rumoured some time ago, didn't come to pass. Maybe he was concerned there's not a lot of screen time to it. It's a great role. And it's a role which really principally drives the film. But you're not really on screen. So that might have been his misgivings, I'm not sure. So it's a, it is ultimately, in terms of screen time, a small role. Important, but small. But like I said, I think Paul Dano's got the right amount of uneasiness about him, the right amount, he's sort of unnerving. Um, he's that psychological threat. A lot of James Bonds oscillate between the big jaws or... Um, you know, Hinks in Spectre, the big physical threat and the cerebral threat. And whilst the physical threat can be fun because you get a fight out of it, these more cerebral psychological threats, I think when done well, are more interesting and more rewarding because you actually get more. You can stretch it out more and you get more out of it. You get a more interesting dynamic. You get a more interesting, you know, uh, clash of perspectives. You get to see Batman be, you know, smart. You get to see Batman be effective, you know, uh, in unraveling the crime, etc. So I liked him. Zoe Kravitz is obviously Selena Kyle slash Catwoman. I don't want to labour this too much because I actually I think she's the best Catwoman. I think she's the best screen Catwoman we've seen. Um, she has great chemistry with Robert Pattinson and particularly with Batman, obviously whom with whom she interacts um, and is an absolute necessity of the role. That's really central to the plot and so is she. Um, she's really capable, which is important. Um, I just think she's really good in the role. You know, Selena and Batman have always had that sexual chemistry. It was in Batman Returns as well. And importantly, these two have that. You couldn't have them up on screen not working together because then the whole film just becomes this jarring mess. But like I said, I really like Selena Kyle in this film. I really liked what they gave her to do, how she interacted with Batman, um, how they interacted together with regard to the, the broader plot. Um and then some little character moments and reveals that she had as the film kind of wore on. Um, it'll be really cool to see how and if, if and when they weave her back into the films, um, if they are to make more of them. Uh, Colin Farrell is obviously the Penguin. 
Oz, as he's called, or calls uh, calls himself. It's a weird piece of casting, not because he's bad, but because he's so un-Colin Farrell-like. You know, he would say that that's acting. And I would say, well, if you're going to go to such extraordinary lengths to conceal your appearance and your voice, why bother casting Colin Farrell? It's a fun interpretation of the character, and it's a good performance from Colin Farrell. Again, there haven't been many good iterations of the Penguin, so the bar there is pretty low. Um, but this one is nice too. It's got lots of ro- room to, to mature and to grow into more as future sequels. There's obviously a tease of that toward the end of the film, which is great as Gotham kind of re-establishes itself after the events of this film. The Penguin will become less of a lackey and more of a driving, leading force. So to have him positioned as sort of this no-nonsense mob boss is good because that's what the character needs to be. He's not a stupid comic relief. He's not some mutant freak. He's a mob boss. So again, a nice simple decision finally made that I think is for the betterment of the property, not just the character, but the broader story being told. Um, So I like that. I like Colin Farrell. Uh, his performance in the role, if nothing else, he wasn't necessary to play the role. It could have been anyone else. Um, Andy Circus, as I mentioned earlier, is Alfred. Sorry. Um, he's previously worked with Matt Reeves on the Planet of the Apes films where he portrayed Caesar. And I liked the presentation here was, was promised to be different and their dynamic was promised to be different. You know, Kane was a more fatherly mentor type. Michael Goff was... You know, in, in the original ones, um, was was fine, but wasn't significant. Really helped here and there, but didn't really have a whole lot to do. Um, but this this film sort of hints at Alfred being or having been in the British military or the service, which is something that the comics have done in the past. He's a bit bit more bit more prepared to get down and dirty. He's got a bit of a past, which is fantastic. Um, and I like the, the the stuff which I'll get into a bit later. Alfred is always an interesting character when done right because he is the connective tissue between Thomas and Bruce Wayne. Or in this case, Martha and Thomas and Bruce. He arguably knew them better than Bruce did. And his recollections or reflections on who they were are probably more vivid than Bruce Bruce would, would have. Not just because Bruce was young, but because um, obviously a very traumatic event, losing his parents what his recollections of how they were and who they were would be skewed. It would be affected and altered by time, whereas Alfred would have a much more reliable impression of of who they were. And that's always a really beautiful dynamic. Funnily, the best moment depicted on screen between Bruce Wayne and Alfred was in, of all films, Batman and Robin. If you've seen the film, you might know the moment. So part of that film's plot centres around Alfred dying of uh, McGregor's syndrome, I think, um, which Mr. Freeze's wife had, and he's trying to cure her of that, and that's why he's a bad guy, because he's trying to steal diamonds to raise money or something for research, I'm not sure. Anyway, Alfred's dying of this disease, and he's in a very bad way, and he's literally on his deathbed, and Bruce sort of sidles up to him, and he holds his hand... And he looks into his eyes and he says, they have a bit of an exchange, and he says, I love you, old man. And it was this beautiful, beautiful moment where you just went, that's the relationship of all they had left was each other. And they needed each other when Bruce's parents were killed. 
everyone always goes, well, Bruce lost his parents. Well, Alfred lost something as well. And he's been affected by this too. This is why he goes along with Bruce, because he feels a sense of duty to shepherd him or to protect him, or he actually agrees with what Bruce is what Bruce is doing, which is which is interesting. Um, which is, you know, within the context of the story and the mythology, really important for them to get. Jeffrey Wright, as Gordon, I mentioned earlier, was given more to do than arguably any Jim Gordon ever, including Gary Oldman, and he gives a really, really good performance. He's really strong in the role, um, a really great ally, and someone who who I think, um, in terms of evolving, because he was really good, it's like I can't see him getting much better to be honest, and if he did, that's a great effort. But Jeffrey Wright's a great actor. You know, Felix Leiter from the James Bond films, been in a whole bunch of stuff, Bernard in uh, Westworld. You know, he's, he's great in everything. Uh, and then John Totaro as Carmine Falcone is really, really good as well. This uneasy, unnerving threat, because he's a criminal, but he's a mob boss, and the way that character, or the way that character's arc unfolds is really satisfying. Um, and he, he's a really, really strong performer in a really, um, really good role. So I won't give too much away there, but John Tataro I thought was really good as Carmine Falcone. Matt Reeves, the director. Okay. So we want to talk about important features or important people in terms of bringing this, this film to screen. We want to talk about Matt Reeves. So previous credits is, as a director include uh, Cloverfield. He also did uh, Dawn and um, War for the Planet of the Apes. Um, and now Batman, you know, the, the Planet of the Apes films he did were really interesting, ballsy takes on what could be potentially very dry and boring material and, <clears throat> and, and had been in the past. You know, he put a really unique um, perspective on that material and really made it sort of probably more profound than most audiences would expect it to. They're, they're some of the more underrated, you know, big-budget blockbuster films in recent times, those Planet of the Apes, those new movies. Um, you know, it started off as a good one there with, with Rise of the Planet of the Apes. You know, he kind of took the baton and really ran with it and, and turned them into something special. And, and you can kind of see that he's he's obviously the, the kind of guy who's got a pretty clear um, impression of what he wants certain properties or what he believes certain properties could look like and become. And when it comes to Batman, I've always thought, that a director has to have a certain amount of ego, perhaps too much, to tackle properties like this. You know, because ultimately everyone's going to go see it. Everyone's going to dissect it and talk about it. They're going to point out every little thing they didn't like about it and where they thought it could have been done better. So to take on something like this, you really have to own a singular, incorruptible vision because there's so much law to adhere to, but so much commentary to be made. You can be abstract don't go outside the lines, you know, if you follow what I mean. It's almost like managing, you know, the biggest soccer clubs in the world. To be manager of Manchester United is a real burden because at some point everyone will know who you are, whether the project you're working on is working or not. And when you make a Batman film, similarly, you're doing it under a really intense spotlight. And then when the film comes out, that only gets bigger. It's a bit like, you know, I mentioned James Bond or, you know, those Star Wars films or the like. And... That's really because everyone's got such a vivid idea as to what the film should look like and feel like and sound like. So they want to know why your take on the material is valid. And I mentioned, you know, I've spoken a bit about that earlier. So I think that in Reeves' case, you know, you've got to have this really auteuristic, you know, this vision of what you see the film being. And it's got to be, it has to be sound. It has to be fully formed and fully realised. It has to be done well. You have to know what you're doing. 
you have to be committed to doing it. Because any compromise and it kind of falls apart. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, the score. The score indeed. So Michael Giacchino, or Giacchino, I'm not sure. I've never heard anyone say his name. But being American, I think they probably, it's probably Giacchino, which Faber Ganoush wouldn't like. Look, he's, he's one of the best composers working in film today. And in fact, he, he has been for some time. I think he and someone like an Alexander Desplat are probably two of the most prominent, two of the, the heir apparents, if you will, um, in that film scoring space. He's worked previously um, with Matt Reeves on Let Me In from 2010, I think it was, and his Planet of the Apes films. Um, you know, Giacchino's his highlights include he won an Oscar for Up, um, which was beautiful, uh, and one, one piece of music there particularly was absolutely beautiful, but that's a wonderful score. He's worked on the MCU Spider-Man films. He's worked on the, the present Jurassic World trilogy, um, which will conclude with Dominion later this year. He was a late call-up to do Rogue One, and, and Rogue One was okay, but it, 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 that score definitely lacked... <sighs> he just wasn't obviously prepared. He came onto it, if rumours are to be believed, he came onto it quite late, and obviously hadn't just hadn't had the time to really work on it and flesh his ideas out. And and that film had a few issues with the director and being replaced and the, the film pivoting and changing course. So uh, whilst the score is fine, it's nothing remarkable, but that's not his fault. He did Doctor Strange, he did Ratatouille, he did Inside Out, he's worked on J.J. Abrams' um, Star Trek uh, series, obviously with uh, Star Trek Beyond being the final one. Um, who was that directed by? James Wan, was it, or Justin Lin? did the uh, Star Trek Beyond. And to be honest, he's actually I might actually play it later on. He's actually produced one of my favourite pieces of music in recent times. So I might, I'm going to play a scene. I'll play a clip of it a bit later on. But um, he did, did the score for Speed Racer, um, the, the Wachowskis film, which had fantastic, just a fantastic piece of music in it called Reboot, which I, I might play later. I've got it queued up, but we, we might go into it. Uh, this particular score is moody and it's unsettling and it's atmospheric, which it has to be. You know, it has to be subtle, but it also has to be really striking. It's a really, it's a really difficult um, target to hit because you've got to have a theme, this four-note theme that he plays, which I, I played a little bit earlier. This four-note theme has to be recognisable as Batman, but then the film itself has to be not overbearing. The score, sorry, has to, can't be too overbearing but it has to fit the atmosphere and the environment of Gotham City and the psychology of the characters. And I think that he's, he's done a really, really good job. Um, I think he's hit with the theme on the nose. It had to be different. It had to be new, um, but it's really, really good. And then this the more psychological stuff. Um, you know, Batman stories at their heart, you know, about his methods and his mindset opposed to the rot of the city, whatever that might be. You know, and every rival is as deranged as he is. You know, every alliance, it's a really uneasy one. Can we trust them? And then I think the score does a good job of, of getting that across. And then also you've got <coughs> an element, if you bear with me, it's going to sound a bit weird, but it also has to be a bit kinky at times. It also has to be a bit strange because, uh, I mean, that <laughs> you're playing into the psyche of these people running around in costumes like, there's an overtly sexual chemistry between Batman and Catwoman, just as an example. It's central to their relationship and is played up and in really important in the pages of comics and on screen for decades. They've had relationships. You know, a film like Watchmen played with this as well and commented on this with Night Owl and Silk Spectre that like, kind of got a, it's a bit of a fetish. 
you know, and at the core of the story, the narrative, ultimately Bruce isn't quite right. What he's doing isn't the action of a sane, balanced individual, even if it's right. Uh, and it actually reminded me, in, in some small part, of, um, not because it's Catwoman or anything, but when Elfman's score kind of found its own unique, his flavour and character in Batman Returns, the first film score was just remarkable. But when Burton and, and Elfman reteamed, and that film definitely becomes more of their work than it does a Batman film. Elfman kind of really stretched his legs and it was, that second score is so him. And I actually want to play a bit of music for no other reason than it's just a brilliant piece of music. So this is uh, called Birth of a Penguin Part 2 and it was sort of the transition, the title music from Batman Returns. And there are elements of that quirky um, piano-y kind of strangeness in Giacchino's score. Not entirely, but just elements of it. But I can still remember hearing this, watching this for the very first time as a four-year-old. I can still see it so vividly, and it stands out today as an absolutely outstanding piece of title music. Just imagine Batman comes out in 1989, one of the biggest films of all time, roaring success. We wait three years for a sequel. The public's clamouring for it. What is it? Let's go see it. And then this is one of the first pieces of music to sort of welcome you back into the world of Batman. obviously just goes into the Batman march. I can still see the credits vividly as that plays and the, the penguin in the little baby carriage is going through the sewer. And it's just, that that is an absolutely breathtaking piece of music. It still is. Um, I just wanted to play it for no other reason to hear it. So, I mean, with that, um, fantastic effort from Michael Giacchino. Brilliant score. One of the highlights of the film, unquestionably. And then before we get on kind of like chicken salads and a, and a sort of a bit of a run through of the really the pros and the cons as such. A special shout-out to Greg Fraser. I mentioned him earlier off the top. 46-year-old Melbourneian, very quickly becoming one of cinema's best cinematographers. His work of late includes Rogue One. Uh, he did Adam McKay's Vice, which starred uh, Christian Bale. Uh, he did Lion, uh, which many people would have watched. Um, uh, Nicole Kidman was in that film. Uh, he, he was nominated for an Oscar for that. He's done a couple episodes of The Mandalorian. And then, crucially, of late, he did June which in just a couple of weeks' time very well probably should net him his first Oscar. And his work here is brilliant again, um, really, really unique, brings a really varied look and feel um, to not just all those films, but this particular film. They all they all look different. Um, and in this particular movie, for instance, I really loved his shot. Seemed to shoot wide open a lot, um, you know, wide open aperture, that is, which gives the film very subtle, very shallow depths of field a lot of the time. Um, it's re- it's brilliant. It, it's fantastically shot. And, I mean, you expect that of these big budget, big studio films. Um, but 
again, fair being fair, fair being fair, a few of those Marvel films, yeah, they're fine. Not a lot of creativity. They're shot very quickly. Um, they're shot for efficiency. There's not a lot of interesting filmmaking going on, if, if you get that. Like something like West Side Story, for instance, guy like Spielberg is constantly what, – what's great when he gets going is how he can realise a scene. The scene is some words on a bit of paper – well, it's the director of photography's job to put that on the screen. You know, the director obviously has a vision and how they want things to look, but the director of photography's job is to make it work. You know, it's and it's such an important, underappreciated role from a lot of things you don't notice it unless it's really, really bad. Um, and in this case, you notice it because it's amazing. So shout out to Greg Fraser, Mel- Melburnian, as I said, are doing absolutely outstanding work and one to absolutely keep an eye on and hopefully in a couple of weeks' time um, can win himself an Oscar because not just for June, it'll be very, very well-deserved. Um, but he might be in the reckoning for something like this in a year's time again. Unfortunately, sometimes these films are forgotten come Oscars time because they're released you know, a full year behind in the cycle, um, but I would not be at all surprised if he's on the radar again for, uh, for this brilliant, brilliant work. Chicken salads, uh, the opening of the film, Starts with the first murder before shifting into an introduction into this Batman's world and his psyche. I think it's really good we experience this new Gotham. Now, Matt Reeves wants us to bed in and he wants to show us this new Gotham. The mood and the atmosphere is phenomenally well done. Um, it is a sinister and it is a nasty, nasty place. Um, which, in, in a way, it kind of borrows elements from both Burton and Nolan. There's this heightened reality of Burton, but then there's this grittiness from the Nolan films. It's a fine line to walk, but I think Reeves and co. do it here very, very well. And then more, it's very, very quickly established that the city is this sprawling cesspit built on an uneasy foundation between law and order. It's all very quickly and effectively established that the city looks decaying, but the reason that is is because the structures which uphold it behind the scenes are decaying. So it's an, it's an obvious kind of parallel to make, but it's really effectively drawn out in this. Um Another really cool thing uh, that I loved at the start of this was we witnessed what the criminal element or why the criminal element are wary of this dark figure that they've heard about Batman is a bit of a myth. You know, he's only two years into his, into his career as Batman. But this narration, which I'm going to get into, there's this narration where he's talking about his, what he's doing. Um, he says, I can't be everywhere, but they don't know where I am. And that's accompanied by these really brilliant shots of criminal activity into a dark void you sort of hear a noise or you hear something and they're just looking into these dark alleys and it's just black and then eventually one of those shots leads to him emerging from the darkness so this idea that he's not everywhere but they don't he might be there and there's this this fear that's sort of just always in the back of their minds um he also mentions too that which was a line in the trailer with the bat signal is a warning to the criminals it's a warning that he's out which is cool. Um, it also very quickly established um, a little bit after that, you know, when he goes to the first crime scene, his relationship with Gordon, which is really central, really important. Um, they trust each other, but they're still a little bit wary. They're still kind of feeling each other out. It's a really fascinating relationship when done right. You know, Gary Oldman was really, really good in the role. Uh, right is just as good, if not better, as I said earlier, um, splitting hairs, but sort of walked back from that statement a bit. Now I'm kind of got them neck and neck. But it's a really fascinating relationship when done right because Batman knows he needs some legitimate law and order 
and Gordon knows that he needs someone who's breaking the rules a bit, and they kind of meet in the middle. You know, as I mentioned earlier, that Alfred stuff is when they get those dynamics right, those roles and those relationships become really meaningful and certainly more meaningful uh, than they're they're sometimes given credit for. Sometimes Gordon's in the film because he needs to be, Alfred's in the film because he needs to be. They're just expected elements that are put into this narrative because you've got to have Alfred, you've got to have Gordon, but we've got to give them something to do as well. And when you give them something to do, you know, they're a dynamic character because of the relationship they have with Batman. Um, I love the narration. I've got a bugbear with the narration, is that it doesn't go long enough. It's very Blade Runner, those first cuts, very Rorschach from Watchmen. And more importantly, it's a classic detective story trope. It takes us inside his mindset and allows his internal monologue to drive the film, to do exposition, to kind of make sense of what he's seeing and trying to do himself. But it disappears from the film. It starts really well. It starts really strong, and it has an absolutely, I thought, integral role to play in the films, you know, playing out from there. But they just sideline it for way too long. You know, they had him at one point, he's working with this diary, he's kind of keeping track, which is a really cool plot element that keeps the narration alive. He's reading from the diary to the audience. You know, very long Halloween in a way from for those kind of familiar year one, you know, with the classic comic books. And I was, I was just frustrated that they got rid of the narration because it's such a great tool with which to isolate him as a character, yet keep him talking. He's talking to us, thinking through the riddles, thinking through the crimes. And then that way, generally speaking in a normal movie, you can't just have one character not talking to anyone. Because you, you obviously need them interacting with people, getting information, sharing information, learning new things. But here, you could get away with that by having him narrate, because he's an isolated character, he's a loner, he's on his own, he's dipping in and out of contact with whoever, Gordon, and then making sense of the meeting in his own head, taking the audience inside that process. That way you don't need to have a conversation between so many people, because he's having it directly with us. So I loved it when it was there, I was a bit frustrated they got rid of it, because I thought it was a really cool sort of idea to keep exploring and to really take us inside... You know, in a comic book, if you if you think that in a comic book, the character's internal monologue is central. You know, that's what tells us what they're thinking, what they're going to do next, etc. So they lent on it, but all too briefly. I love the 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 theme of you know fathers and family, again central to you know the theme and the undercurrent of the film, and and the Riddler's plot itself was the idea of elitism and legacy. You know, for a lot of people, largely, um, Thomas Wayne is a bit of an enigma and has been forever for audience. We think he's a good man because we to- we're told that he is. And we think he's a good man because he's Bruce Wayne's father and Bruce mourns him. There's a lot of assumed, well, yeah, well, I mean, he must have been good. I, yeah, I will pay you the courtesy if he a, was a good guy. But as I mentioned earlier, in reality, Bruce probably wouldn't know or remember too much vivid stuff about his mum and dad. Such was the age that he lost them and the trauma of the event. So you've got this fun, you've got this fun sandbox to play in, which the film does, in that how much of the Wayne legacy was mythologized by their deaths. The film he was running for mayor and then he ends up dead, you know, a week later. And then we pick the story up 20 years later, and Bruce is Batman. 
that gap in the middle is obviously important. We don't need it book and verse. But what his impression of his mum and dad was is probably corrupted by grief and time, you know. So isolation, you know, all, all those things. It's a really cool thematic thing to kind of explore and I think this film does a good job of doing it. I absolutely loved the reveal and that uh, his <clears throat> his maternal side were the Arkhams. I love that this idea that he was the product. We always knew that he was the Prince of Gotham, the son of the wealthy elite. But this idea that his mum was the Arkhams, she herself had some mental health problems, which the film covers. Um, and if you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about there. Obviously, that becomes Arkham Asylum, etc., 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 which is really, really, really fun. I love it. I love that this concept, again, they're not just talking about Bruce Wayne when they, they ask this question, but what, how much, what drives good men, good people, what takes them across the line? Because usually that question's asked of Bruce. How far is too far before they pull themselves back? You know, as society unravels, as people are tested, you know, you are driven to act on impulse, you know, on fear, on self-interest, on paranoia. And how desperate do things get, personally, before you compromise? And in this film, what Bruce is tangling with is not just that himself personally, but that question applied to his dad. You know, I loved, again, spoke about it a bit earlier, but the little moments where Alfred lets us into the past a bit, he knows more about what it means to be a Wayne, arguably, than Bruce does. There's a really lovely moment where um, he's trying to get Bruce ready for a particular meeting and he wants him to wear these cufflinks and Bruce kind of fobs it off. You know, I don't know where they are, I can't find them. And Alfred goes, where mine? And Alfred's attitude is, you're representing the Wayne family. You know, that means something. And Bruce kind of curtly goes, you know, you're not a Wayne. In kind of a dismissive, you know, why do you care so much? You're not a Wayne. And Alfred's response, again, was this really lovely little beat, this lovely little moment, you know, for a character largely in this regard that has been underserved for, for a long, long time. He basically remarks that, yeah, I'm not a... You know, he doesn't say this, but he, he says, uh, your father gave them to me, as if to say, I'm not a Wayne, but I value the relationship I had with your father was such that he gave them to me. And that's why he cherishes them. That's why they are an important an important item for him is because of a level of trust attained, you know, a level of family, um, et cetera, which was really great. Obviously, when it becomes revealed that, you know, Bruce's father was unfortunately tied up in a um, legal happening, shall we say, an unsavory happening, when that revelation comes to Bruce, there's this nice moment again where, Bruce mourns, he says, I've spent years fighting for him, as if to say, I've been fighting for the wrong thing. I was fighting for this man who it's revealed to me now was not what I thought he was. And then Alfred obviously, you know, details, you know, this this nice kind of recollections of the murder, you know, how he responded it, how he responded to a change in his role and whether he could be what Bruce needed him to be again, is this really nice beat. This idea where Bruce, where Alfred kind of sets the record straight, if you will, and says to him, look, I think I knew, I think I knew who did it. I think I knew who killed your parents. He goes, but it could have just been someone in the street. It's this this idea of how many times do you live it over? How many times do you try to figure out 
how it happened or why it happened or who did it or why they did it. And at the end of the day, if you can't be for sure, you know, Alfred's got that because I think it might have been this guy. He goes, but it could have been some, could have just been someone in the street. And it's just you can never quite be sure, you know, again, there's that, that power of grief and, and how it makes you relive things or try to recast them. It's, it's this really cool kind of thing going um, flowing through it. The link that they have with um, Carmine Falcone as well is really interesting. I really like that where Thomas Wayne sort of got into bed with Falcone to take care of someone blackmailing his wife uh, to protect his wife, not to protect himself or his mayoral aspirations, but to protect his wife, which was, again, itself a nice little small beat. Falcone went too far, and there's this thing earlier where he, he remarks that he came to Wayne Manor one night and Thomas Wayne saved his life on the dining room table. And it's this fun thing at the time where you're like, Falcone passes it off as, um, he says, you'd be surprised what good men can do. But the double meaning is obviously revealed later that Thomas had approached him about taking care of a pretty ordinary guy who was trying to blackmail him. They went too far. The guy gets killed. Again, central to the Riddler's plot because the Riddler knows that. But there's this cool element of initially you think the line means good men or Thomas Wayne helped me. You wouldn't think that he'd help me. I'm a, you know, I'm a bad guy. You wouldn't think that he'd help me. But what he actually means is he came to me to do something he wasn't prepared to do. So again, that duality, nice touch. Um, and then another thing, obviously, the, so the, the journalist who was blackmailing the Waynes, Thomas Wayne, Martha Wayne, um, initially I thought that it was going to be revealed to be the Riddler's dad was going to be this journo, and that's how he knew all about it. And he was a little boy, and that's that's how he was across it all. Um, you know, and their their paths, Bruce Wayne's path and and the Riddler's path, sort of come from the same happening. What what leads to the creation of Batman is the killing of his parents. What leads to the creation of the Riddler is the killing of his parents. One of them had the means to go about it one way; the other has no means, goes about it the other way, becomes really embittered about it in a nasty way, and wants to pay that forward to the the people of Gotham and particularly the establishments who wronged his father. Um, in the end, I didn't need him to be, but I was kind of sitting there going, maybe that'd be too obvious. Maybe that would make the world too small. Oh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sort of too hung up about it, but my initial impression was, oh, will he be the journo's son? And that's his tie to this story. We're all involved in this story. Batman wants to know, how am I involved in this story? Well, Bruce is involved through his father. So too is the Riddler. Didn't end up happening. Not terribly important but I just thought that's the way it was going to go. Uh, the Penguin and Catwoman really liked the, the characterization of both. I mentioned that earlier. thought they were presented really well. Um, to me, Oz is a bit like Luther in Superman. That's how they have to do him. They have to do him as a big, burly, brutish mob boss who's got this legitimate front that is kind of just this veneer of sophistication and um, yeah, legitimacy that is actually just all a front and a fraud. I think that's what they need to do with, with Luther if they could do another Superman, which they will eventually. We'll wait and see how that plays out. Um, but they're both, really, they're both set up really nicely, both in terms of their relationship with Batman and their roles in the plot to return at a later date. Um, that'll be cool to watch that. Uh, we wait with interest. Um, there's a car chase in, in which the Batmobile is not really prominently featured in the movie, but it does have one standout sequence uh, where he's pursuing... The Penguin, which we've seen bits of in the trailer. Um, the sound design was absolutely phenomenal as the Batmobile fired up in the darkness, and 
and the treble and the rumble shakes the cinema. Absolutely first rate, just just tremendous. Uh, and there's actually a piece of music I want to play. You know, I mentioned in the James Bond review um, the motif, the James Bond Zimmer's motif from No Time to Die, which props up whenever he's being James Bond. And it's this driving, drum-driven, fantastic action motif. Uh, really usable in a number of ways, but as an action motif, it really shines. And Giacchino's done the same thing here with the four-note Batman theme, which I'll illustrate in this piece of music, entitled Highway to the Anger Zone. So again, a really good example of that motif you know, telling us this is a Batman, he's Batman, he's being Batman, this is a Batman moment, and really used effectively, um, a really pulsating, um, energetic piece of music that accompanied the scene brilliantly, uh, and then Fraser's photography again, absolutely outstanding in this sequence, a, lot of, a couple of shots in particular were really beautiful, really breathtakingly put together, you know, putting together a car chase can be daunting because, um, you know, logistically it is quite difficult. Um, but in this case, I think they put it together a really, really sort of artistic way, which is the point of the medium, isn't it? It's not to necessarily shoot something as easily as you can, um, but to realise it as well as you can. Um, the Batcave, we don't have to spend an awful amount of time on this topic because we don't really spend much time in the Batcave as such, but what we do see is great. So Bruce is living um, in, the, uh, in Wayne Tower in town, uh, which has an abandoned train station in the basement uh, the Wayne Terminus, and oh, I just really like it. It's a bit of, I always wonder, It's a, it's. A, I think it would be a bit of a thrill for production designers, I'd imagine, to do a few things, um, and if you get a, you know, a Batman movie, it's probably a bit of a bucket list sort of undertaking, but at the top of that list would be to design the Batcave, to design the Batmobile. What's my take on these really iconic pieces of cinema lore? It's like, how, what am I going to do? How do I make it work? How do I make it um, you know, functional? How do I make it visually interesting? And in this case, I think they did a really, really good job of it. Um, I don't actually have the production designer's name to hand, which is a shame. I was going to make a, a note of that, but um, really liked it. I thought it was a really cool sort of um, realisation of, of something now that's been done a number of times. So uh, to do it in an interesting way um, is a pat on the back for them. And then by extension of that, I like that Wayne Manor was this sort of derelict house occupied by squatters. You know, I like the psychology behind that, that Bruce doesn't want to go back there. You know, Snyder's film sort of touched on this as well, this, this idea that that's his father's house and it's a place in which his, his life ended, you know, in a way when his parents died. So he just doesn't want to be there. So it became this um, symbol, if you will, of the Wayne name. You know, after the parents died, you know, the house fell into disrepair and so too did the legacy and, and the family name as such. Um, I liked the idea as well of escalation. One of Nolan's greatest gifts to the Batman mythos was escalation. Um, he perfectly encapsulated you know, the Batman paradox that because Batman exists, so too will his villains. And here it is again, you know, subtly explored. You know, Batman emerges, so the Riddler feels emboldened to 
use him as a pawn to play a game with him. You know, he plays as Batman at the heart of this this game he's playing, uh, and this this vendetta he has against the city. Um, and then again, further to that, I sort of liked that the Riddler attained this sort of martyrdom online. He got a bit of a following, which comes to its head at the end of the movie. Um, but this is what happens with any kind of alternative, strange entity: is that they develop this. There's a bit where he murders the mayor, and they um, they have a uh, uh, what they call it a, a memorial for him. And Bruce Wayne decides to go to kind of do some recon and whatnot. They have a memorial for the mayor, and out the front as people are turning up, there are people holding signs in support of the Riddler, who's just murdered someone. You sort of get these elements, don't you? I like that. He's become a bit of a martyr for some unsettled, strange people, which pays off at the end of the film. Um, As for Chicken Shits, um, again, I don't want to be too harsh, because for the most part, I like the movie. I absolutely need to see the movie again, no question about it. Um, and I'll hope to do though, do so in the coming days um, to really fully sort of nut out exactly what my thoughts are on it because I like so much about it. Firstly, I think it's too long. I think it's probably half an hour too long. And particularly at the end, once the film gets towards this kind of, this conclusion is a little bit drawn out and it kind of goes on to my principal musing about The Batman which we've waited nearly 80 minutes to hear, if you're still listening, well done, um, is this. How do I say this? I found myself in the cinema thinking, and I wrote a note down to explore further, how much of this movie is a balancing act between what Matt Reeves wanted the film to be and the character to be, and what you have to do with it. How much of it is you know, what the film wants to be and what the audience and the studio expect it to be. How much of it is the give and take between those two things? I got the impression watching it that Matt Reeves wanted to make Zodiac, but the studio wants a comic book movie. So what you get is a good film, don't get me wrong, but I think we get a compromise as well. It's a property from which we expect fistfights and car chases and gadgets, but should it be? So the point is there, you can still have a Batmobile and you can still have a fight if you need him to have a fight. He still has his bat gadgets, that's fine. But he's less more. Is Batman a property or a concept that has outgrown itself? I reckon I could make an argument that smaller is better, that more intimate, more psychological would be better because while the, the big stuff is good, don't get me wrong, the car chase is a really great sequence. There's a couple of other sort of fight sequences which are good fun and he, he gets to be Batman and he gets to do what the audience wants Batman to be done. But if you're challenging people like they are with the look and the feel and the rhythm of this film and you want to be risky, I found myself sitting there going, be risky. Like, the quieter moments are just as interesting as him fighting someone in a nightclub. But it needs to have the fights and the car chases and all that stuff for it to have make you know major tentpole mainstream appeal to be a big summer blockbuster movie. But as I said, I could argue that smaller would be better. This is a different kind of comic book movie. It's a more thoughtful one. It's lighter on spectacle a lot of the time. It's a bit more sinister. It's heavier on plot. How this sits with broader audiences would be interesting. 
no matter how good a film it is, no matter how much people like it or don't like it, it's for them or it's not, I found myself sitting there thinking, will someone ever have the balls? Will someone ever have the pitch? Darren Aronofsky might have years ago, but he's a weird unit, to do a Batman film for like $30 million. Really stripped back, bare bones, detective noir, you know, classic thriller. Sort of like The Joker. The Joker didn't need to be a $150 million movie to be what it was. And I don't think Batman needs to be a $150 million movie every time they make one. I think there's a really interesting Batman movie with so many of the elements that Matt Reeves, you know, visually and thematically has put into this particular film. I think there is a Batman movie with all that Reeves gets done right at its heart that's really stripped back. A lot of these comics don't have much scale because he's a detective. He's investigating murders or crimes or the like. You know, something like Seven or, jeez, I don't know, all that other stuff, Along Came a Spider, you can think of them. Some great, any great thriller whodunits or whatever you've ever seen, they're not costing crazy, crazy money to make. And more to the point, what I'm trying to get at, you don't have to spend $150 million, $200 million on a Batman movie, which then means if you've only spent $30 million on a Batman movie, it doesn't need to make $800 million. If it makes $200 million, which is what Batman Begins did, which was a great movie, you've done well. You've done really well. It's just scales of filmmaking economy that I found myself sitting there in the cinema going, so much about this film is great, but at times is it being something it doesn't want to be and it doesn't need to be because that's what the audience think they want. But if you have the conviction to show us a more stripped-back, streamlined intimate film that might be just as good that might be just as well received easy to make cheaper to make all the overheads come down etc uh the other chicken shit narration i mentioned earlier i thought abandoning the narration was a bad idea um i thought it was really driving the plot i thought it was um really interesting element that they would have done well to persist with Uh, i'd like to know that the the rationale between um studio and filmmaker or whoever it was that decided we don't want to do that anymore. We can do it to start, but we want to abandon it thereafter. Um, yeah, I don't, not, not sure. I, I, I really liked it. Disappointed they, they cut it off. There's a plot twist, um, which is a bit Departed-esque. The idea that, you know, when, uh, in Departed where Nicholson is the rat, there's a very similar moment in this film. It doesn't mean that it doesn't work, and it's probably nitpicking on my part, but I did sit there going, it's just the Departed. They're going to do The Departed, aren't they? Okay. And it was fine, but it was just... Oh, we've seen that before. Um, the riddles the riddles were good. No issue with the riddles in and of themselves. Um, but the central riddle, which was to do with uh, Lorata, or the, the rat with wings, um, it seems incongruous that Batman solves every other riddle in the film in two seconds. Like somebody... He could be, he could be like just out of earshot and somebody could be telling a friend a riddle and Batman will walk on over and just, he will just yell out the answer in two seconds. But he doesn't once consider that the rat with wings might be him until the penguin says it. It's, it's a bit weird. It's like, you know, you're smart, dumb. When the penguin did it, I was like, because even Batman's like, oh, man, is he talking about me? And the penguin's like, yeah, a bat. A rat with wings. A bat. 
And you're like, you've gotten every other riddle, like, you know, you're doing the Saturday crossword, but that one you didn't once consider, fuck, is he talking about me? He might be talking about me. <laughs> so it's quite funny. Um, and on that, I, too, I, thought, I thought sometimes it was a bit Batman the TV show where, like, Dick Grayson would just get the riddles in no time. And that became a running gag. He was just so good. He would just the riddles would be nonsensical. He'd just get them. Part of me was like, they kind of they kind of work through these riddles really quickly, which like good on him, but a bit national treasury where like Ben Gates just figures out this crazy puzzle, you know, you know, with a stream of consciousness. Um, I get that the film has to run time and has to you know make hay. Um, there's a tease at the end of the film where the riddle gets uh, incarcerated and in the cell next to him. The setup is clearly that it's the Joker. Um, stop doing the Joker. Stop doing him for stop doing him for ten years. Don't just give us a break with the Joker for a little bit. You know we've had. If you think back now, fourteen odd years. Yeah, Ledger was great. Uh, Jared Leto was just in the wrong movie. Like he, he wasn't great, but it was just a bad movie, and that obviously informs the performance and the look and the feel. And then obviously Joaquin Phoenix was great as well. You kind of go with, I think we've had enough Jokers in a short amount of time. Do something without the Joker for a little bit. Give us a couple films without him. Don't feel like you have to do the Joker. Do Two-Face. Like Harvey Dent probably should have been in this movie. Just as Harvey Dent. Don't feel like you have to set up and close off every single character in every movie. So that's why the Penguin's cool is that he's kind of a supporting character in this movie and will potentially you know, transition into being a bigger, bigger deal in movies to come, in some of the comics, he actually becomes the mayor. So you sort of like, if you get to that point, that's cool long-form storytelling. Introduce Harvey Dent. Have him be a friend, an ally, etc. And don't even bother hinting at the Two-Face thing until later. Don't bother hinting at the Two-Face film, even in the uh, Two-Face, in the next movie. Still Harvey Dent. So that way, when he falls and becomes Two-Face, we've spent time with him as a good man. And that's the tragedy of it. So, stop doing the Joker. We don't I just. I don't know what more you can. What I mean could be famous last words. He'll be fantastic. They'll do a fantastic take on the Joker, which will completely blow us away. That would be great if it happened. I just think don't worry about it. Do something else. Um, and then lastly, I mentioned earlier something about Robin. Do Robin. This is the one great obvious Batman story that is yet to be committed to film. Kevin Smith and Mark Bernard and do these Batman commentaries. They've got a bunch of them from the old trilogy and maybe even begins, I think, where they just wax over the film and they're quite funny. And during the Batman Forever one, they've made some unbelievable points and they're 100% on the money. There are some moments in Batman Forever to do with Robin that are brilliant if it's a 12-year-old boy, if he's a little kid. As it is, Chris O'Donnell is like a 28-year-old man, doesn't quite hit the same. And nor should it. But if he's a 12-year-old boy and he looks down through the circus, you know, when he sees his parents and they're dead on the ground, everyone looks up up in him, he's got the wide eyes, you know, welling up. You know, that's beautiful. There's a moment in Forever where Batman's trapped under the red dirt, you know, um, two faces, shot a fireball at him, and he's stuck and he can't get out and Robin comes in and saves him. And you look up and there's the arm, pulls him out, and Batman looks up to who saved me, and it's Robin. You go... Yeah, if, it's, if that's a 12-year-old boy, like, that's a great moment. And their relationship and their kinship and their, you know, they are kindred spirits in that they've both gone through the same thing at a similar age 
and Bruce feels a level of duty to this kid to protect him, firstly and foremost, and then to kind of guide Robin's redemption and his arc from Dick Grayson from being hobbled by anger and pain to sort of living with it and to channeling it in in the way that he has and to be, you know, a mentor for him. It's a really powerful relationship that I just hope Warner Brothers and Co. don't put into too hard basket because of, oh, it just looks weird if this bloke's got a 12-year-old kid. No, it's because he's, it's him. And this film hints at it a little bit with the mayor's son where Bruce sees the mayor's son a few times and sees himself. And you're going, "That's that's a cool beat. It's this idea of, I know what you're going through and I can help you get through it. Not by putting him in harm's way or anything, but by realising if I don't do something, this kid's going to make a mistake. So for me, the Robin thing is the most obvious story in the world to do. Kick-Ass did it with Hit Girl when they had Chloe Grace Moretz was quite young and he went, perfect, they've got to be a kid. I mentioned Spider-Man earlier. They've got to be a kid. And there's so much cool stuff. Robin's reckoning in the old animated series. There's so much great stuff in that relationship between Bruce and Dick Grayson. Um, You know, that enriches Bruce as a character. Um, That gives him someone to play off. um, And has some really fun stuff to explore from there as well. So, like I said, at the end of the day, all things being equal, um, I, I I think it's a good film. I'm not sure how good of a film it is. My instinct at the moment is like three and a half stars, um, which is lower than I wanted it to be walking into the cinema, but I'm happy to bump that up again, you know, uh, upon further viewings. Um, I love Batman. I think there's so much cool stuff still to be said about the character. I think that Matt Reeves accomplishes a bit of that here. Um, you know, but we, we sort of wait for that definitive telling to come along, at least for me anyway. You know, I've enjoyed large parts of every telling of Batman and this is no different. Maybe I'm being unrealistic, waiting for a level of perfection that is uh, unattainable. But um, the film, as I said, is in wide release now. If you go and see it and you like it, get in touch with me. Let me know what you think about it. Let me know, you know, your thoughts, uh, where you sit on it, where you hope it goes. Um, I'd love to hear them. So thanks so much for listening in. It's been uh, good fun to do. Um, Like I said, love the character, love talking talking about Batman, what he means to me and and what I make of it all. So um, thanks so much. Uh, We'll catch you next time, Um, whenever that might be. I'm actually not sure what the next uh, major thing, maybe the Obi-Wan series when that comes out in May might be the next major one I do. I don't know if that beats Doctor Strange. We might do one for that. But no, no, thanks so much. We'll catch you next time.